is us. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, I'm going to blow that straight away because I want to tell you about one of my most embarrassing stories. Um, I'm not quite sure how it fits in with the sermon, but I'm going to blame Neil because uh, he started off the meeting this morning when we, we were first here by praying the Lord's Prayer. And uh, I got saved when I was about 13 and got involved in a school CU. And when I was in year 10, I got invited to lead the sixth form prayer meeting, which as a year 10 was a big honour. Not only was I allowed to come to the sixth form prayer meeting, but I was invited to lead it. So I thought, great. And I prepared carefully for it. I've been to enough prayer meetings to know how you how you do it, you know, you start off encouraging people to pray, setting out, leading them through things to pray. And I thought, at the end of it, the prayers have started to die down. I thought, okay, what I'll do is I'll start us off praying the Lord's Prayer. And then everyone will join in, it'll be very meaningful, and it'll be a nice way to end the meeting. So I'll start off, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, silence. It's like, okay, looks like I'm doing this on my own. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, on earth as in heaven. (laughs) There then followed five minutes of very painful, bindweed-turning silence before someone else closed the meeting and I shuffled off. So that was my most embarrassing moment. I'll fit it into the sermon somehow. Um... But I thought I'd just share that. So um, this morning, talking of embarrassments, we are going to be looking at a leadership crisis. So we're going to be looking at a nation that has had leading leadership that is failing, that there is now a vacancy, or there is an emerging vacancy. Does this sound at all topical or familiar? Uh, when I got this passage, I kind of went, well, this is timely, isn't it? How can I do this in a politically neutral way? So I will do my best. So we are looking at uh, 1 Samuel. So if you have your Bibles or your phones or your apps or your tablets or any other electronic device, uh, if you'd like to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, I've got a whole chapter. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'm going to cover off the first nine verses uh, and I'm going to skip over to the end. So we're in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 8 and verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you're old. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, and you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. 
And then Samuel goes on to talk about the ways of the king and what that will mean. Uh, And then in verse 19 we read, Despite that warning, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may be like all the other nations, and that our king may judge us, go out before us, and fight our battles. When Samuel had heard all the words of the Lord, he repeated them, to the, uh, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go back, every man, to his city. So just in terms of the context of this passage, uh, we're looking at a period, a darker period in Israel's history. So uh, last week, Neil talked about uh, Elijah, uh, Eli and his uh, sons uh, and the calling of Samuel. We're now skipping forward about 40 or 50 years, uh, but this is towards the end of the time of the, uh, the judges. So the judges had ruled over Israel for about 300 years. In terms of history, this is about 1400 BC to 1100 BC. So that's kind of the time scale we're talking about. Uh, this passage is thought to be around about 1100 BC. And it had been a time of real failure, I think. So the high point had been the exodus out of uh, Egypt when God has set his people free, brought them into the land of Canaan, they had conquered the land of Canaan. But then like a blancmange sliding down a wall, you have this slow spiritual decline and military failure that happens in the nation of Israel until we get to the real low point that is Eli. And uh, just after the period, just after the passage we looked at last week, Uh, the Philistines come and take the Ark of the Covenant, the most sacred element, and take it away into captivity. So really the the lowest point uh, in the nation. And then you get the the rise of Samuel. Samuel comes along, he gets back the, the Ark, and he restores some kind of stability and sense of God to the nation uh, after this really difficult, dark time. But what we see in this passage is that as uh, Samuel's getting older, he wants to set up his sons to take over, but actually they're not up to the job. And so the, the elders, if you like, the 1922 Committee of Israel, come along the men in grey suits to uh, Samuel and say to him, look, you're getting old. Your sons aren't up to the job. We've got to do something like this. And we look around us and we see uh, in Canaan you saw all the city-states that had a king. So surrounding Israel were the city-states that had a clear king. Israel itself was a collection of 12 tribes. You'd got judges that were appointed typically in in cities, and there wasn't really this sense of of nationhood. It didn't have this sense of nationhood because there wasn't a king that it all kind of surrounded it around. What it was was around the religion. It was around the worship of Jehovah, But there was this sense that there was nothing collective. So in terms of national identity, it was tied up with uh, Jehovah and the relationship between being God's people. But actually they wanted a a king, something that gave them that sense of identity. So they come and they say, give us a king. And uh, this displeases uh, Samuel greatly. And we'll come on to it in a little bit. Uh, And so he goes before the Lord. The Lord says, just warn them. And what you have then in the bit that I didn't read out was a warning of what a king would be like for Israel. So a king would take your young men and force them into the army to fight. The king would come 
and take your young women to be cooks and bakers and perfumers in his palace because he wants to have a glorious palace. He would come and take your money and your tithes that, you, that belong to God, come and take those and take them for his own lifestyle. And then he would suppress your freedom and rule over you so that you call out to God and God will not hear. And that's the solemn warning. And yet, we then pick up in 19, the word that's used there is that Israel hardens their heart. And the elders harden their heart and they say, no, give us a king. And then Samuel at the end of it, almost in a fit of peak, he goes to God, God says, give him a king, and he goes, right, go home. In a fit of peak, I've had enough, go home, and I'll give you a king. So it's really quite a sombering passage. And there's three things I want to draw out of it. And I'm really proud of myself because they all begin with a letter R. <laughs> that, however, gives me a bit of a challenge in terms of referring to them in the plural. So uh, this might need a bit of sensitivity. So the first R is one of rejection. And, and when I first read this passage, I was really struck by how Samuel must have felt. Now, when I look at how old Samuel is in this passage, they reckon he's between 50 and 60. I'm 56. Uh, And when you get to this kind of age, you start to notice various things. You start to notice that no matter how many pairs are scattered around the house, you can never find a pair of reading glasses when you need them. You notice that gravity makes everything slowly start to solidify around your waist. You notice that hair starts to grow where it really shouldn't and not where it should. And you notice that rather than springing out of bed in the morning, you kind of creak slowly out and hope that the body warms up in time. However, I'm not decrepit yet, thank you. And I'm not, my kids love to tell me that you're old. So just sit in your armchair, Grandad, with your slippers and your blanket. I'm not there yet. And so I feel for Samuel when people come to him and then say, basically, you're old. He's not old. He's middle-aged. He's very youthful. He's got plenty more to give. Thank you. But they come and call him old. And basically, they are accusing him of being inadequate as a leader. You're not up to the job. And then they go on to say, and your sons are not following in your footsteps. You're an inadequate father. And I feel that. I feel that because I'm, I'm kind of, I've got three kids of my own with my first wife. I've got three stepkids. They're now in their teens and early 20s. And I sit there and I look back on my life and I think, have I been an adequate father? Have I actually been there when they needed me? Uh, at one point, I uh, worked as a pastor of a church and I think, did that impact, how did that affect them? When my wife, uh, their mother, and I split up, did that impact them? Have I modelled the values that I wanted to, vo- to, to model? Have I been a good representation of a father? Have I taught them Jesus and brought them up in the way of the Lord? And I think it must be really hard for Samuel to be accused, basically being inadequate as a man, you're old, inadequate as a father, and inadequate as a leader. And so I feel for him. I really feel for him. And yet, what I find interesting is, is the way he responds to that rejection and those accusations. He, he doesn't sit there and stew, which is what I would do. I'd sit there and go, do you know what I've done for you? Rather than that, he takes it to God. And then he hears from God, it's not about you. It's not about you, it was about me. They weren't rejecting you, 
they're rejecting me. And you know what? You probably are inadequate, but actually I am more than adequate to be the Lord of Israel. And I think this is a challenge that every Christian parent faces. And it's easy to think that uh, our children and their spiritual health is down to us. And it's for our friends and families as well, those who we want to see saved, those who we want to know Jesus. We kind of sit there and we can beat ourselves up. I find it very easy to beat myself up and go, have I actually done enough? Have I been a good witness? And I felt God, when I was beating myself up about this, I remember I felt God come to me and say, it's the Lord who saves, not you. There's nothing I can do to make anyone else a Christian. Because ultimately it is God who chooses, God who speaks, God who opens the eyes, and God who gives faith to believe. So this morning, if you're feeling under pressure or under guilt or feeling, have I been good enough? Know this, it's, it's not on you. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. So just release that, that burden on you. It's, it's, it's about Jesus. He is the one who saves He is the one who restores. He is the one who redeems. And it is our privilege sometimes that he uses us and cooperates with us to deliver that. That's a real privilege, but it's not about us. So that's my first R. My second R is is, is reasonable. Actually, the elders had a reasonable request. Who would replace Samuel? Okay, he's still got a while to go. We actually know he lives on about another 20 or 30 years after this period during the lifetime of of Saul. So he still had some time to go, but it was a valid question to start asking. Who is going to lead the nation of Israel when Samuel isn't there, and particularly since his sons don't seem to be up to the job? And they actually had a scriptural basis for asking this question. So if we look at uh, Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 17... Uh, and verse 14, Deuteronomy actually makes provisions for having kings over Israel. So in uh, Deuteronomy 17, verse 14, we read, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. So you can kind of imagine... It's not here in the passage, but you know you can imagine a cheeky elder coming along and going, "Look, this is what it says in Deuteronomy. We're just claiming. It just says here, Deuteronomy 17. Give us a king, and you've got to give us a king." So it was a reasonable request. Asking for a king in of itself was not an act of rebellion. It was actually in line with what Scripture had foreseen. It made good sense. It made good sense to have a king who would unite the tribes and bring the tribes together. However, ultimately it was the political manifestation of a spiritual problem. And the spiritual problem was that the the heart of Israel had rejected God. And in the warning, Samuel tells the people that the king will take their service, take their loyalty, take their tithes, and take their freedom, all of the things that belong to Yahweh, so that the king would usurp the position that uh, Yahweh took as over the nation. But in their place, they say, we explicitly, that's fine, they explicitly reject God. In their response, they say, actually, we, yep, we know all that, we still want a king. 
We still want a king. We want a king who will judge over us because actually we don't want God judging over us. We want a king who will go before them like uh, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire had gone before them as they came out of uh, Egypt to fight their battles for them as the Lord had gone out and fought their battles as they had conquered Canaan. All things that the Lord had done, they, in this passage, say that they want a king to do for them. So although it was a reasonable request at face value, what lay behind it was actually not in asking for a king, but in using the king to replace the position that God had taken in the nation. I guess the challenge is that sometimes good things can take the place of God. Sometimes things that are God-given can become a hindrance and take the place, the first place in our hearts that God wants for himself. Things like a family, children, job, ministry, church. All God-ordained, but ultimately they can't take the place of the Lord as first in our hearts. So that's my second R. Firstly, one of rejection. Secondly, a reasonable request. And my third R is about redemption. So I'm sorry, this is quite somber this morning. You've all gone a bit flat on me. It's quite a, it's quite a, a, a tough story because this really is a turning point in the nation of Israel from being a theocracy ruled by God through the judges to being a monarchy judged by and ruled over by a king. So it is quite a turning point. It's a pivotal transition. And it's a further episode, as we read in the passage, all the way from Egypt, Israel has rebelled and rejected God. And this is just a further step in that journey of rejection. And the warnings that are in this passage about a king, as we'll go on to see next week and beyond, actually come true in the lives of the kings. However, it's all part of God's redemption story. And one of the reasons why we're doing this series and why we looked at Judges earlier on in the year is to set out this meta-narrative, the big story in Scripture, about how God wanted a people for his own possession, how he chose them in Abraham, how he set them free out of uh, Egypt, and how we then redeem them through Jesus on the cross, and how we have a future and a glory ahead of us when he comes again. So that's the big redemption story, and this story here is part of that story, because it ushers in the story of David, and from David we then have Jesus. So it's part of that story, and here's my link back to my embarrassing story at the beginning. So as I look at my life and I look about the, the times I've had in my life, there have been times which have been great. There have been times which have been cringingly embarrassing. That Now I look back and just go, oh, what were you thinking? There have been times that have been really tough. And there have been times when I have drifted and I know I have not followed Jesus with any sort of passion, but have kind of hung in there. But through it all, there is a story of redemption that he chose me, he's working on me, and boy, he's got plenty to work on, but he's working on me, and one day it will come to fruition. One day I will stand before him spotless, not because of my effort, because of what he did in Jesus. 
So I, I rejoice a bit in those embarrassing stories, because A, it keeps me humble, and I'm a proud person, and B, it reminds me, I look back and kind of think, yeah, I learned from that. Those lessons and those knocks I've had along the way, they tell a story, and I'm grateful for that story. And as we look at the, the church in this country, I think it's fair to say the church is, is struggling. The church is not where we'd want it to be. If we look on the history of, of the church in this country and how it, it sent the gospel across the, the nations and across the globe, and how we saw great revival come in Wesley and Whitfield, how we saw uh, the, the, the Lord's name being taken up, through the Clapham sect and seeing slavery abolished in this country, seeing godly rule being restored, and actually look at ourselves now where we see the church marginalised in the, in the public debate, and we see the church perhaps not its greatest strength. And yet, we know that this is part of a redemption story. We know that this is part of a story that started when the gospel first came to this, this country in the Dark Ages, and then we've seen it through the Reformation, through revival in the past, we'll see it through revival again, and I pray every day, Lord, bring revival, hasten that day. But I know where, the, where this is going to end up, because we read about it in Revelation. It is going to end up with a glorified church. It is going to end up with the gospel being proclaimed in every street corner. It is going to end with people receiving the gospel and being saved. And then it's going to end with Jesus as our bridegroom meeting his bride. So I guess... What I wanted to say, church, is be encouraged. Be encouraged even when you're going through those difficulty times and those knocks in your own personal life because it is working out your salvation, sometimes with fear and trembling, sometimes with gratitude and praise, but it's working out your salvation. And keep plugging away at being the church. Keep loving each other, forgiving each other, encouraging each other, embracing one another because although we don't see it yet, it is part of a glorious destiny that we're going to walk into, to be a glorious bride of Christ, ready for him who welcomes him. Let's pray.